and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this New Year's Day and reflect back on 2022, but also look ahead to 2023 with hope for better things to come, while acknowledging the daunting challenges ahead as our crippling political polarization is likely to intensify as distraction and demagoguery inhibits the chances of solutions to real problems. Joining us is Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing in U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We will discuss the growing threat of American fascism and how the Republican Party is being captured by radical right extremists, while the leader of this anti-democratic movement, Donald Trump, continues to project the lie that radical left Democrats are taking over the country. Then we'll look further into our political polarization as 2023 promises to be even more rancorous on Capitol Hill and explore historical analogies such as the the collapse of the Whig Party in the 1850s, which gave birth to the Know-Nothing Party, whose xenophobia and ignorance appears to live on in today's Freedom Caucus in the House GOP. Given the possibility that DeSantis may capture the nomination from Trump, could the petulant loser pick up his marbles and form his own party, causing a split in the GOP, which might then go the way of the Whigs? Joining us is Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, the Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. His latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. And on this New Year's Day, we are joined by Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism, Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. Great to be with you, Ian. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And I guess the words that would, to some extent, sum up 2022, uh, gaslighting, how George Orwell came back with a vengeance in Russia, where... 1984 is now the number one bestseller in Russia. Uh, It's also a year where billionaires got richer while millions died. What would you add to the list of uh, characterizing 2022 before we get into what we think, uh, we hope, think, fear 2023 will be? Well, Ian, I I do think that the issue, this this is more of an ancillary problem that needs to be solved, but the news media have really been hollowed out, both on the progressive side and the mainstream side, Um, and that is truly dangerous at a time when fascism is clearly on the rise. Um, Gaslighting, I was really surprised to see that as the word of the year, because for me, it was like the word of the year in 2016, right? I mean, that's when the word really started to get used with the whole initial Trump campaign um, and uh, how he just would state things and people accepted them as true. Um, so gaslighting, I think that's been going on a long time. And 
I do believe that if media, especially mainstream media, were required uh, to read some basic texts on, you know, the role of the U.S. right in American politics, because what we get from mainstream media in terms of covering U.S. politics is the same old um, framework used to uh, cover U.S. politics in the before times, right? Be- before Trump. And that, you mean that, that, that on the one hand, the other hand, that yes, kind of binary that, notion? But that beyond the, that, beyond the binary, and just know that the, the, the idea that this is something new, that we constantly kind of find that in the U.S. media. This is something that sprung up in 2016 when you look at, you know, uh, groups like the Proud Boys, or you look at Oath Keepers. So this is something that sprung up in 2012. Well, yes, that one group, that's true. But they're part of a long continuum of similar, uh, of similar organizations. And they have infrastructure built, and we just don't even know what that infrastructure is because we don't have mainstream media who have more resources than the, you know, the pathetic, um, by pathetic, I don't mean not trying, I mean the, the, the poor state of progressive media in terms of resources and infighting and all of that. Well, I'm not sure how powerful the riot is, but they disproportionately get more attention, and I, I don't know whether that's the f- problem of the left. That, you know, I mean, one of the disparities is that, you know, people like Trump and, and the crazies in the Congress keep referring to Radical left Democrats. Well, you know, how many radical left Democrats are there? My God, you could count them on one hand, if, and you'd probably be exaggerating. But there are clearly radical right Republicans led by Trump, and, you know, God knows what most of the House of Representatives are on the Republican side. So why aren't they characterized as the radical right? Which they are. Well, they truly should be. And I think, you know, that's a failure of messaging often by, um, you know, uh, Democratic politicians um, who are trying to do business with these people, right? They're in Congress with these people. But the other thing with that is that the news media are really afraid of the right. And this, I saw this beginning to happen in the 1990s, uh, where um, the Christian right brilliantly framed anybody who criticized them, especially in mainstream media, as being anti-religion, because guess what? Most reporters are not super religious. So that's the way they were able to frame it. And once that got injected into the bloodstream of U.S. politics, um, then the mainstream media were, you know, radical left, you know, on the side of the Democrats. Well, there was a recent meeting uh, at... New York Young Republicans Club, where a group of right-wingers and fascists and neo-fascists and fascist sympathizers gathered with keynote speaker being Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Steve Bannon was there, and that's when Marjorie Taylor Greene made the comment that if Bannon and Heard organized January the 6th, it would have gone better, and they would have been armed. And here she is, a member of the (laughs) the House of Representatives, praising insurrection, and wanting it to be more violent and bloody next time. What I learned from the reporter who covered it for the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, who is the reason why we know about it, is his work, he said there was a kind of sort of embarrassing, kind of tacky, somewhat pathetic nature to these right-wingers who wanted to take, have pictures taken of them 
and they want they desperately crave celebrity because right. they don't have they don't the right has never had any traction in terms of our culture the left has the cultural hegemony in in the arts and in the movies and television and etc and i think it drives them crazy so i just don't understand why they can't be more marginalized i mean it's true we got a right wing troll like Elon Musk, who's now right. the second, second richest man in the world, buying a major media platform to propagate he paid, his he views. Paid <laughs> he paid which, $44 billion <laughs> just to own the libs. <laughs> right, uh, to own the libs. There you go. So hmm. that's, a, I think, a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I agree with you. And, um, you know, to quote the great page, Steve Bannon, uh, politics is downstream from culture. Um, I think that actually came from uh, Andrew Breitbart, for whom Bannon had worked. But nonetheless, I think that's very true, and I do think it drives them nuts. But I think, the, on the other hand, Democrats um, actually rely too much on that. That I do think that the star system, of, uh, uh, in terms of who leads foundations um, and who's on the boards of foundations, I think that, you know, progressive foundations and progressive, you know, uh, nonprofit media uh, and political organizations that drive voter turnout, all that kind of thing. I think that there's been way too much of a reliance on that kind of star system, hiring somebody who can babble on MSNBC rather than actually lead and create infrastructure that's interconnected um, on the left wing side. So. I think it cuts both ways. I do think it makes them nuts because, you know, the celebrities have a big megaphone, a big platform. But on the other hand, I do think that overemphasis on stars and star systems have really not served the Democrats and, and the American people very well. And that extends to Democratic funding. They fund a kind of movie star race of who's going to be president. And uh, that's Absolutely. where they throw their most of their money, but they don't put their money in local races and, and building a bench. And now you have a situation where if Joe Biden, after this Christmas, he said over the Christmas break, he and Jill mm -hmm. will decide whether he's going to run again. So mm -hmm. if he decides he's not running again, where's the Democratic bench? Indeed. Indeed. You know, where, where, where are those people? Who are those people? Um, it's very hard to know right now um, because we just don't know who is sitting on their hands, right, um, waiting for the Biden an, um, announcement. But uh, I do agree that there has not been the kind of bench building. And you've got to remember that celebrity thrives on big media attention, right? And so when you're building out a bench and you're, putting, injecting your celebrity dough into small races and you're building uh, institutions that craft policy and interconnecting them with political organizations, you're not going to get a lot of coverage for that. That's not going to soothe the ego of the funder. And the problem in progressive politics has long been that we rely on funders who don't really have skin in the game of at least equality politics, you know, and equity and income disparity. So, so I think that we really, my, my big wish is that we start thinking about things in very structural ways and not looking at the surface. So now that the, this is the first day of 2023, 
What's your sense of, I mean, I mentioned whether or not Biden's going to run, which I think will be a huge story, and I don't know when that will happen or if, if it'll happen in terms of him deciding to step down and find a replacement. That's a big story. What, what else do you think is going to be dominating the headlines? Because I really pray that we find a way not to talk about Donald Trump and Elon Musk, these two attention-craving narcissists. One's an infantile troller, and the other one is a thoroughly corrupt and increasingly irrelevant scammer or (laughs) grifter. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. Can can we find a way to ignore these attention-seeking narcissists? I think it's very difficult if 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 Trump is is running for the nomination of the Republican Party and he's a former president, it's it's very difficult to say, well, we're just not going to give him uh, the kind of platform he wants. And what happens is it gets amplified in social media. So even if you do a respectable job of covering uh, Trump, and I think some of this also Ian has to do with the beat journalism system where. You know, basically, reporters can find themselves not quite co-opted, but very much, you know, in the weeds with their own candidate at the expense of any context. You know, the candidate that they're covering, not necessarily that they're voting for, but they're covering. So we have really complicated structural issues. Um, But going forward, um, so I don't know that we can really... um, you know, pull the plug on there and amplifying them. I just really don't know that that's feasible. But what I do hope is that the Oath Keepers, uh, you know, who are on trial as we speak, um, will be convicted of seditious conspiracy. It's, uh, I believe, four members of the Oath Keepers. It might be more. Um, and the Proud is, Boys, too. Oh, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. No worries. Oath Keepers is... Yeah, but the, the no, there are more of I, them on trial too. But the Proud Boys are on trial as well. Yeah, but let me three, two, one. I mean, my for the immediate uh, the immediate future, I'm really hoping that the Proud Boys who are on trial, even as we speak, are convicted of seditious conspiracy. But I also hope that the messengers. Uh, who are against fascism, whether they're Democrats or just concerned citizens or, you know, moms against guns or whatever, that I really, really hope that somebody explains to the American people what sedition is (laughs) and what qualifies as seditious conspiracy, because I think that, you know, these terms are very mystifying to people. And we have not, for all of our being adept at culture, uh, we have not done a good job at explaining these things. So in terms of fascism and dealing with the roots of it in the sense that you have to try and figure out why, what attracts people to, I mean, you could not find a more ridiculous example of a leader than Donald Trump. I mean, he really makes Mussolini look good. He's such a clown and so pathetic and such a psychological wreck and such a massive incompetent and a total fraud. And on top of that, a criminal and possibly a traitor. I mean, you, and completely I, malevolent in in all things. Completely yeah, malevolent. I mean, just a horrible man and a sad man because he'd had no no love in his life. The only love affair he has is with himself. 
So how did this guy become president, one? But two, what led a lot of, you know, white working class men and others to, to support him? And some of them support him, will support him to the death. So that's what I wonder about. And, and you know, the, the interviews I've done over the years have sort of suggested, you know, that people are feeling marginalised somehow. They think the elites are looking down on them. They're confused. They're worried about white replacement. There's all these theories out there. So what's the antidote? In other words, you know, nipping this thing in the bud. As I say, I think it's bark is worse than its bite, but it's still, uh, you know, we dodged a bullet uh, in the midterms in terms of the fascists taking over the election machinery, but they haven't gone away. Indeed, they have not gone away. And I believe that, I don't know precisely what the antidote is. I mean, you have to, my sense, going back to, you know, covering the religious right and the Tea Party and everything that led up to, you know, January 6th, where I was on the grounds of the Capitol and all of that. Um, I, I think that what, it's not simply that they feel marginalized and um, demeaned by the elites. It's that they were raised with the notion that regardless how much they suffered, they were still above a couple of categories of people. And now as people in those categories, particularly people of color and black people, uh, indeed, um, then the resentments just begin to fester and fester and fester. And then it's easy to come up with phantasmagorical, scenario by which these people have been, you know, have had their place in the world taken away from them, their own agency taken away from them, all of that. I mean, I don't know how we could ever get it through, but if we had a social, a a social, uh, you know, I hate to say safety net, but, you know, a kind of a social policy in which everybody had skin in the game. I mean, we see this in Scandinavia. It's kept them more peaceful than domestically than us, although they've had some, you know, kind of uh, one-off terrors uh, in terms of terrorist uh, actors. However, um, when everybody from the richest to the poorest gets a stipend for XYZ or is part of a a public health system, um, then you don't have this kind of, you know, separation of, oh, you're on this side of the poverty line by a few bucks and you get this and you're not. So you don't, or the characterization of poverty as being black when we know that it's, you know, in the United States, majority of poor people are white. Um, so I think that there's, again, I'm sorry to be such a nerd, you know, <laughs> I feel like I should have gone to school for engineering and because it's all about infrastructure. It's all about building systems. It's not just things you can say to persuade people. There needs to be underlying systems that reinforce all of those ideas of a common good, um, of compromise, all of those things. But there is not the way the system is built now, the political system, the social safety system, um, our media system. None of that is possible because of the way the system is constructed. Well, that leads me to the the question or the, or the observation of of alienation 
from our politics and from our democracy. And that's mm-hmm. on both the left and the right. And the further you go on the left and the right fringes, the more alienated people are. And I think right. that has a lot to do with, I think there is a simple solution, and you've hinted at it with the Scandinavians, is you know, social democracy. If, if the people understood that you vote for politicians who in turn become good stewards of your tax money and provide you with social services and government services, and if they don't, you vote them out. And right. to some extent, you know, that still works in a lot of countries, and, and even in France, which we often decry, but you notice every time anybody <laughs> tries to take away any any social program in France, the people take to the street <laughs> by, you know, in the millions. They surely do. Yeah, right. with, their, with right. their yellow jackets, et cetera. So why why don't we have that understanding? Because we're we're toyed with and distracted by the plutocracy with the racial issues and and guns and abortion and all these extraneous things, which are social issues, not political issues, and yet our politics are dominated by them, I think, for cynical reasons. I think that's, that's very true. Um, but I also uh, believe that, you know, I, I, I think that your point is taken, that, you know, we need to have the buy-in. What it will take for us to get there, um, you know, and to convince people that you're a politician who has their interests at heart. At this point, I think the reason why it's so difficult for us, I mean, I hate to be so repeating really a kind of a trope, but American individualism, for one, is definitely, you know, it, 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 it militates against the common good narrative. Um, but there are many American narratives that can be extracted you know, barn raising, you know, where communities come together, you know, you know, community food banks, all of this stuff. There's plenty of common good activity going on in the United States, but it's at such a small scale and done by such regular and not, you know, photoshopped people that it's very difficult in the American mind to break through. And the other piece of this is, is COVID has made it so much worse, right? I mean, we were already, as you said, the isolation, you know, the whole um, bowling alone syndrome um, was already a big part of American culture. Um, We would have to remember our families kind of got busted apart, our extended families got busted apart um, in the the rise of the the late industrial revolution where people were sent all out to plants all over the country and all of that kind of thing. So we've always had that sort of thing, the push westward, you know, all this, we've had a lot of things in our history that do break up communities and families. Uh, And then that gave rise to the myth of American individualism with the emphasis, which comes, you know, for the emphasis on individual rights that we find in our founding documents. Um, So I think we've got, we've got to find some very good, very American stories that, illustrate you know the 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 need to do this and i hate to say but we may need a celebrity voice (laughs) to articulate that given the given the structure the current structure of our system right that we have we all of us have a stake in in this project and you can take it even further i guess from the national to the global we all also we're all in lifeboat earth together and um 
the sea is <laughs> rising. So indeed. So let's not get too pessimistic here on this first day of 2023. What hope do you have? I mean, we, we've discussed to some extent the fears we have about American fascism, but what hope do you have? I do have hope on a few things. I mean, I do think, though, we're way behind the eight ball on climate change. I think the two recent COP meetings have elevated um, the discussion and really been more inclusive, though not inclusive enough, of um, the global south, uh, people who are really suffering uh, even worse results of climate change than we're seeing here. Uh, So I have some hope that we can um, make some substantial progress uh, on climate change, though I don't know if it will be uh, quite enough. And I've got to say, um, the World Cup has been really fascinating. I mean, it, 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 it was truly, truly corrupt in the way that it was uh, landed in Qatar and, and, and the human rights abuses. But seeing people express joy at their, their, their national team winning without you know, coming to fisticuffs in the streets of Doha. I mean, I think that was, I mean, that seeing all that Arab joy was just wonderful, right? Um, you know, my, my thing is like, I think the World Cup must live, but FIFA must die. <laughs> but, I, you know, so I do have a hope that we can find ways to, uh, and here I'm going to use an overused word, but to, to, to come together in spaces of joy, and, you know, to have some joy between cultures, whether it's at the domestic level, the international level, and, you know, really, really understand that as rough a shape as the world is in, there is still joy to be had, and we need to do it with each other. And in terms of the geopolitical challenges, just in the last minute here, Adele, obviously uh, things are going to get worse in Ukraine with the possibility of a Russian offensive starting in the winter while the ground is still right. hard and they're attacking from the north, opening up a new front in the north from Belarus, right. which even if they're repelled by the Ukrainians, it'll still be at a cost to the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians are suffering casualties because obviously they're outnumbered mm-hmm. three to one by the Russians. So that's a tragedy that goes on and I just know that Putin's only chance is because he's an intelligence officer he's he's targeting the republican right and you know people like tucker carlson according to u.s intelligence tucker carlson is a russian agent and he Mm -hmm. was told so by a republican congressman on the uh, intelligence committee so (laughs) how do we deal with that problem which is you know the idea that you've got a pro-putin caucus in the republican house Yeah, I mean, I really don't exactly know uh, anything that can be done other than exposure. And it's going to take a lot of exposure and investigating to to figure out some of how this is working. But we've already seen, um, and of course, Putin's been very um, crafty about the uh, American far left too. You know, he's co-opted people like Matt Taibbi and who used to be a leftist, I guess, um, uh, Max Blumenthal and that crowd. Um, you know, very, very 
anti-Ukraine, pro-Putin people. And so I think this is really going to be a big challenge. But I don't think we can wait until we have the absolute receipts on everyone. We need some serious messaging comparing things that Putin has said to things that these guys have said and and exposing who Putin is. I mean, a wish for 2023, I wish that Putin is no longer the head of Russia and he's replaced by a more benevolent leader. But given Russia's history, I'm, I'm not. It's a wish. Maybe not super hopeful. Well, Adele, nevertheless, Happy New Year to you. I appreciate your joining Happy us. New Year to you. And it's been great to be with you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who's a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into our political polarization as 2023 promises to be even more rancorous on Capitol Hill. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us on this New Year's Day is Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he's taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Wilentz. Oh, great. Uh, Happy New Year, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thank you, and Happy New Year to you, Sean. And as we uh, look ahead at 2023, is there anything you'd like to say about 2022, apart from (laughs) good riddance? (laughs) Well, no, look, it looked like it was going to be a lot worse than it turned out to be, in my view. You know, um, the midterm election, it, 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 you know, considering the fact that the Republicans captured the House, um, it, it was about as good an election outcome as I could have imagined. So, you know, it was a, it was a rough, rough and rocky year in many ways, but, you know, um, a little bit of hope there at the end. Well, the Republicans, of course, have got a pretty slim majority exactly. <laughs> in no, exactly. the House, exactly. and uh, maybe even slimmer if 
one of the members at, in uh, Long Island has a completely bogus uh, <laughs> resume. It's outrageous, and nobody knows where his money came from. He'd lied about his employ- prior employment. Yeah. His academic yeah. Yeah. credentials are all completely fictional. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. how do you ever make any money? Uh, nobody seems to know. So that nobody raises all kinds of suspicions. And, he, and, of course, he showed up at that uh, the, the, the Festival of Fascists in New York a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. the Young Republican mm-hmm. Club, yep. where Marjorie Taylor Greene said that if she and Steve Bannon had organized January the 6th, it would have worked better. And they would have been armed. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we no. can, Look, can we say uh, goodbye to all of those people? Tell me. Well, I'd love, uh, no, not yet. But I think we're gaining on them anyway. Um, um, look, uh, the Republican caucus, I mean, it's just going to be ungovernable as far as I can see. I mean, why does Kevin McCarthy even want this job? I guess he's a glutton for punishment because he's going to be on the receiving end of a great deal uh, from from every angle. So. Um, you know, so in that sense, I think, you know, we're going to hear a lot more. They have more power within the, the caucus than they did before the, the Freedom Caucus I'm talking about now within the Republican conference. But, you know, um, it's going to be a it's going to be like herding scorched cats to try to get them to do anything. Now, there will be other things to come. But I you don't know. I you know, I don't think it's going to work anymore or it's not going to work as much as it has. Um, um, things that the Republicans have done from time immemorial in order to. Um, get their way, um, especially, you know, investigations. I mean, look, the Republicans have nothing to do except to cut taxes on the rich and investigate Democrats. And I think I just have a feeling I, I, there's nothing I can't give you any evidence for this. But I have a feeling that that has come to an end, not the taxes part, but the investigations part. In other words, they're going to do it. They're certainly going to do it. But I don't think it's going to wash anywhere near as well as it has in the past. That is hopeful because it'll expose that they are essentially a bankrupt political party um, with a bunch of crazies shouting and screaming and not much else. Well, but when you say they won't get anything done, isn't that the point of the new Republican Party? Not to get anything done or just to distract the American people from essentially the fact that they are a wholly owned subsidiary of the American oligarchy? Well, that, no, look, all that is true. Um, um, now, let me back up, though, and say that there'll be other things that will be going on in Congress, unless Joe Manchin jumps ship and things go completely crazy. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, well, we're, we're doing this on January 1st, so that may actually be a done, a done deal. So I don't want to predict anything. You can cut all this out, Ian. But um, let me go back and say that, you know, assuming that the Democrats um, hold their majority in the Senate, they can do a great deal to just forget about legislation and just approve judge after judge after judge, which would be an important thing to do. But yes, look, the Republicans are the party of no. They are the party of obstruction. They are going to go as far as they can to keep it up, uh, to try to get their way um, uh, with, you know, closing on the government if need be. They're going to do all of their tricks. I think it's only going to make them a weaker party. It's going to show, I, I think, it's going to show them as, bank, as bankrupt as they are in a way that, that, that hasn't been the case up till now. So what kind of damage can they do, though? I mean, obviously, it's- Threatening to shut down the government is a reckless endangerment of the United States. There's a pro-Putin caucus in the GOP. And outside the GOP at Fox News, you have Tucker Carlson, who apparently, according to U.S. intelligence, is a Russian agent, apparently a GOP representative in Texas who's a member of the Intelligence Committee, told 
Tucker Carlson that the U.S. Intelligence Committee consider him a Russian yeah. agent. Yeah. Um, how did we get to well, that point? And will, do you think they will have any success in cutting funds for Ukraine as this war grinds on through 2023? If the election had turned out differently, I would have been very worried. But I'm not as worried now. Um, and the reason I'm not is because reliably about half the caucus, uh, the, the Republicans, and half the Republican conference in the House is actually voted in favor of giving funds to Ukraine. And, um, you know, you have the Freedom Caucus people who are out on the right, who are in the, the Putin faction, in effect, in the Republican Party. But their their numbers are few. Their voices loud, their numbers are few. How much can they, can they bring to bear on, on McCarthy? How much is McCarthy going to be, you know, Trump's, um, you know, puppet? In, in, in the, it, 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 it's all less certain than it was, right? If they had had a huge majority, then, you know, they would have served Ukraine up to the wolves um, very happily. Um, I'm not so sure they're going to be able to do that quite so quickly as they thought they were going to be able to do. There's going to be a fight about it, no question. They're going to say, you know, all the usual things, which is that this is money that should go to the American people. Ha, 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 as if they were sincere about that. Um, but, you know, they'll play the isolationist card, basically. Um, but I'm not sure it's going to work. Also, in the Ukraine business, I mean, so far, the idea of Ukraine fatigue has proven to be pretty thin. I mean, there's still a great deal of support for um, the resistance to Putin um, in Ukraine and for us, for that matter, elsewhere, but especially Ukraine. I, I don't get the sense that the American people are, you know, getting tired of this of this war. I mean, we're all getting tired of it. You know what I'm saying? Tired of supporting the Ukrainians. I don't. I, I don't. I don't see it yet. Uh, it could happen, but I think to put it to put it uh, more concisely, I think that the Republicans will try to cut Ukraine to their political peril. And do you think, Sean Mullins, that 2023 will be the year of the rise of Governor Ron DeSantis and the fall of Donald Trump? And if so, isn't that out of the frying pan into the fire? Isn't Ron DeSantis an even more dangerous right-wing sort of proto-fascist than Trump, well, who's kind of has no politics except self-aggrandizement? No, I, I don't think that DeSantis is as dangerous as Trump, because Trump truly is a man who was outside, who would clearly, obviously, willingly undo the U.S. Constitution and has said so, right? I don't think DeSantis falls under that category. I think DeSantis is a run-of-the-mill, demagogic, right-wing Republican. We've seen them before. Um, we're going to see them again. I don't see him as anything, you know, outside of the realm of the American constitutional order the way that I see Trump. So uh, it's not that I'm, I'm happy that DeSantis is, is, is going to be there, but, you know, I, it, it's a different order of business. Now, his politics, I'm not sure that, you know, DeSantis is, 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 is so great as the Republicans think he is. I mean, he's done well in Florida, but, you know, he's basically a stunt man. I mean, all he ever does is, 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 is pull stunts. You know, sending um, um, you know immigrants uh, up to Martha's Vineyard for the summer or something like that. I mean, he pulls stunts. That's all he does. I think that you know he can be very easily exposed as simply a stunt man. And you know, uh, you really want the stunt man behind the wheel? <laughs> what stunt men do, as we know in the movies, they crash the car, right? So uh, that that's really what the fantasy is, is, is about. I, I think you know, yes, he will have his support. Yes, he could you know get some, but I don't think he, he's anywhere near as strong a candidate as as he looks like now to the Republicans as an alternative 
to Trump. Um, he's also somewhat of a likable figure. I mean, people who I know who have hung around with him, he's not a, you know, look, he's Trump without the shtick, okay? But mm-hmm. the shtick is a lot of what Trump is. And um, without it, he's just kind of a, you know, not too appealing, somewhat, you know, whiny, un- unpleasant fellow. <laughs> so right. I don't see him as anywhere near as strong as Trump has been. And and so it's the it's the best of both possible worlds, I suppose, in that respect, because he's not got Trump's strength. And at the same time, he doesn't pose the kind of, uh, you know, the direct danger to American democracy that Trump does. Let's now take a brief station break and we're back continuing the conversation in a moment with Sean Willens. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org, and we're continuing the conversation with Sean Wilentz on this New Year's Day. He is the George Henry Davis, 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, and his books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1874 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. So since we're talking on New Year's Day of 2023, the first day of 2023, what we can expect on the Democratic side in terms of what's the lead up to 2024, the next presidential election, mm-hmm. is at some point soon, Joe Biden will tell us what he and Jill and the family discussed over the holidays about whether or not he should run again. and. Yeah. That is for an historian. I mean, I'm sure you, you <laughs> we can talk about what happened to Teddy Roosevelt after he won his second term. He said, I'm not going to run again. And he wished to God he'd never said that. He tried to take <laughs> those words back. It's the, he recognized it was the worst thing he'd ever done in his life. And he right. made himself a lame duck president. So right. could that happen to Biden? Well, Biden has a has a big decision to make. Um, uh, you know, it'd be I'd be a bit crazy, I think, for him. Yes, to to declare that he's not going to run. Okay, I mean that would be why to declare yourself a lame duck with a still two years left in your term, right? I mean it, it doesn't that wouldn't make political sense to me. So that I think if he's going to make any, any announcements, he's going to announce that he's running, right? So that would be make make the most sense. And then there's a question of whether that's a good thing or not. You know, I think that he's going to have to address the age issue straight on. I mean, that's there. It's a real issue. You can't get away from it. But, you know, <clears throat> on the age issue, I remember, you remember, Ian, I mean, 
there was a time when if you were in your 70s, you were considered to be an old man. Things have changed somewhat. Maybe the 80s or the new 70s, I don't know, but things have changed. The actuarial tables have shifted. But I remember very well um, when Ronald Reagan was thought of to be, you know, too old. And in fact, it, 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 he may have been too old for all we know. He may have already started to, you know, to fail in his second term. But nevertheless, he handled that issue extremely well, if you remember, very deftly in one debate where, you know, he took on um, um, the Fritz Mondale, Walter Mondale, you know, and said he was not going to exploit the youth and inexperience of his of his adversary, of his opponent. Now. You know, it was a quick line. It was a it was a it was a deft line. It's the kind of thing that Reagan was very good at. Um, I don't know that, that that Biden's the same, but I think that the age issue could be handled. Um, um, you know, along the same lines. Um, the question is, who do you trust? Do you trust me? Or do you trust the other guys? As old as I am, who are you going to trust to run the government? Me or Ron DeSantis? Uh, I think that that's a sort of a no-brainer. But he has to decide for himself what he wants to do. You know, which he hasn't yet announced. So. Assuming that, as you've made clear, Sean Lawrence, that declaring himself a lame duck would be suicide, but towards the end, uh, closer to 2024, if he decided he was running out of steam, and it is a, it's a hell of a tough job, and you've got yes. to hand it to Biden. He's been underestimated so much and written off so yes. early, and he's achieved yep. an awful lot with such a thin major- majority. Yep. Nothing like what yep. FDR had. So Correct. that in itself, I think, is, is pretty impressive. But my sense is that the Democratic bench itself is the problem. It's just mm-hmm. so thin compared to the Republican mm-hmm. bench. They're probably going to have another replay of 2024 where you'll have, you know, like 10 Republicans up there along with Trump and DeSantis. But on mm-hmm. the Democratic side, assuming that Biden decides not to run, uh, who would you have? Yeah, it's a problem, um, which has always been the problem. Um, I mean, the Democrats are at least you know, two cycles away from having a, a strong bench. There are some good people out there. Um, you know, I think government, uh, you know, Gretchen Whitmer out in Michigan is a strong, would be a strong candidate. Um, even, even what's his name? And why am I saying what's his name? We don't know them yet. Mark Kelly in Arizona. I mean, there's a lot of good people out there, but they're not quite ready. Um, and, and, um, it's a problem for, for Biden. I, I imagine he's looking over the field the same way you are or I am and saying, you know, it's not it's not stellar. So that's going to have to be another consideration. Now, you know, if he decides not to run, I mean, I also remember a, uh, a Democratic candidate named Barack Obama, who nobody knew at all except for a speech that he gave, you know, in 2004 when he was running in 2008. He'd given a single speech. You know, and he really, you know, media, it was meteoric now, his rise, or it was uh, like a missile. It went up really quickly. Um, it's, it's entirely possible. My point is it's entirely possible in this age of social media and 24-7 news and all the rest of it for somebody to, 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 to catch fire pretty quickly, much more quickly than in the old days. You know, when you had to announce, you know, way in advance and you had to build a different kind of party structure. Um, you know, it, it's possible it could happen. I don't know who that would be. Um, and well, then again, of I course, guess the you know, point like, you're oh, making, wait. I guess the point you're making, Sean, is that the Democrats who rise through the ranks don't tend to do that well. But the Democrats that come out of nowhere, like Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama, uh, the meteoric ones, right? And well, and, it could be somebody from the inside, too. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of, you know, I mean, Gretchen Whitmer's a governor, she's not, but she's been around. 
Mm-hmm. You know, she could catch fire. Um, it's, it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, it's it, yeah, it'd be more people we haven't heard of, but um, but you know, well, we really haven't heard of any of them. <laughs> The unknown presidential candidate, right. Yeah, I mean, if you ask the American people who Pete, Pete Buttigieg is, I mean, they probably mm. not really know. Um, um, so, you mm. know, it's, it's something that he has to calculate. He also has to think about the vice president. I mean, there is a vice president, Kamala Harris, who has support, you know, in the party. It's a bit of a, it's going to be very tricky. Um, mm. What I will say about Biden, and, and you really said this before, Ian, yourself, is that you know, he he has been very, very shrewd in how he's maneuvered with so little political you know, basis for doing so. I mean, he hasn't got the, the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. There were people who, I remember when, when he was elected and everybody said, ah, now the way is clear. We have the House, we have the Senate, we can be FDR all over again. And my, my reaction was that those people had flunked arithmetic because they couldn't <laughs> see how, how, how small a margin he was going to have. And yet he has managed to maneuver that extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and navigate that extremely well. And I don't, you know, he, he's got he's got another river to navigate, but maybe he can do this as well. Um, as you say, people underestimate have underestimated him a lot. And I mean, this is where the insider actually is an advantage because he's been around for so long and he knows the way that things work um, and better than, than than most people. Certainly better than Ron DeSantis, better than Donald Trump. I mean. Um, he knows how the government's supposed to work and how it does work, and you know, uh, and that goes for the for the politics as well. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm, what I suppose I'm saying I'm guardedly optimistic about all this stuff, but I have no reason to be. <laughs> right. it's, well, it's well let, let's put your historian hat on, Sean, and talk about yeah. what happened in the 1850s, where the Whig Party simply collapsed, and what came out of the detritus was the Know Nothing Party, and to some extent. That is what's happening to the Republican Party now with its radical right-wing uh, wing mm-hmm. that's now dominating the House of Representatives. Is there a possibility that you could have a repeat of the 1850s with the Republican Party splitting? Let's assume mm-hmm. that DeSantis mm-hmm. gets the nomination, Trump is mm-hmm. furious and storms off mm-hmm. with his marbles and forms his own party. Mm-hmm. Are any of these scenarios likely to repeat themselves? Absolutely. There's nothing that's unlikely. Everything is possible. You know, in this, the situation is so volatile. It's so fluid. It's so without rules. And the historian is kind of, you know, left wondering how to figure it out. The analogy to the Whigs is, is, is a good one, though, I think, because, um, I mean, what you've got is a party that can't sustain itself. Um, in, the, in the case of the 1850s, it was the Northern Whigs, you know, who were tended to be more anti-slavery than than, than, than the Democrats, certainly, um, against the, 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 the Southern Whigs, who were a bunch of slaveholders for the most part, not all, but, but many. They couldn't sustain that given the politics of slavery and how it was impinging on everything by 1854. Um, in the case of the Republican Party today, it's, it's somewhat different. There's no one issue, but you've really got 10 parties. Um, th- that are not, and they're highly ideological, and they don't like each other, you know, and, and, and they managed to, I mean, Trump managed to commandeer them and to lead them. And one of the reasons they're so um, loyal to Trump is that he's the only guy who can manage to hold that party together. And you take him away, and what's it going to look like? That's, not, that's my first point. And, and it's not unlike, you know, the situation that the Whigs faced. Um, the second, though, which is very different, is that, you know, Donald Trump is all about the grift, as far as I can see. 
right? I mean, he's here. He is selling. He was selling, um, you know, um, action cards, action figure cards of himself looking like Superman or the Hulk or something. I mean, you know, but he's selling it to the to the to the people out there. He's making money. Um, he might just go for third party just to keep the grift going. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past him because um, um, he doesn't really care about the politics of it. Um, he doesn't care what's going to happen to the politics of it. But Trump is a whole other thing we have to think about, though. I mean, we, um, I mean, by the time we get to, um, uh, say, the 4th of July, right, it's entirely possible that, that the former president will, will have been indicted. And that puts him in a whole different situation. Um, legally, he's going to have to worry about it. He's going to have to deal with it. It's, it, you know, Eugene Debs ran for the president, friend, friend from prison, but it, it is rather a different kind of candidate than Donald Trump. I think that Trump's going to face much more adversity than he ever banked on. And I think in the midterms actually were, were, were what shifted it. The midterms plus the January 6th committee, um, which I think had a tremendous impact. So I, 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 I don't see Trump as a big, as big a deal in all of this. No. Well, but do you think at the end of the day, given the extraordinary number of cases against him and the mounting evidence, do you think at the end of the day they could do a plea bargain with Trump where, you know, rather than go to prison, we'll just mm -hmm. accept the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that you can't run again? Well, you know, fine. I mean, I don't know what I, I, I don't I don't Trump is not known for, you know, cutting that kind of deal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he, he prefers to to do it a different kind of way. He's he's always got to win, right? Right, but he's never um, been to prison. I, though. That's the point. <laughs> this is an excellent point. I mean, look, it, we'll have to see how the Justice Department, you know, see there are all these variables, right? I mean, what is Merrick Garland going to do? Are they really going to go after him? I mean, then again, there is the woman in Georgia and there is the woman in New York, so he can uh, he can he can he can get it from a number of different directions at the same time. Um, right. But I think, I, I, and what I'm trying to say is that, yes, Trump could, could go third party. I think Trump is much weaker now than he was before. And um, and I think that scares the hell out of the Republican Party because they're trying to figure out where to go. And they look at Ron DeSantis. And he, is he going to be the guy? Well, I don't know that, that he stands up for everybody. I don't think he's Donald Trump, that's for sure. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that they're nervous. Now, we have a situation where both parties are, are have tremendous problems. And that's what makes the thing so, you know, at one of the same time, so fascinating and so terrifying. Well, just um, in the last couple of minutes, then, Sean Mullins, let's go to another historical period, the yeah. 1930s and the 1940s. Rachel Maddow's had this very impressive podcast series, uh, Ultra, on fascist coup attempts in the United States government, mm -hmm. led in 1944, of all, in the middle of the war. A U.S. senator working directly with an, a Nazi operative, along with a bunch mm -hmm. of American congressmen. And prior mm -hmm. to that, of course, you go back to Lindbergh and, and the German-American Bund. Can you mm -hmm. make the case that fascism is in this country's DNA? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't like to talk about DNA as an historian anyway, but is, is, right. is there a fascist element in American political life? Sure, of course. Um, I mean, that's not a, you know, I mean, look, with Jim Crow... <laughs> Had elements of a, of a fascist state. It didn't look different, right? It wasn't, it wasn't Nazis, but it was, you know, it was bad enough if you were a black person in Alabama. Um, yeah, of course, it's there, but it's never congealed in, in quite the way that it has until now. Um, and, but I, I think it's, I don't think it's, I, I'm, I'm not so worried about it. I, I really, I really am not. I think that 
the fever may have broken on all of this. Um, it's, it, they're out there. It's all there. The militias are there. This is, I'm not trying to say that we should not be vigilant. Right. But the, something the, gu- has the guns are there, too, Sean, I might add. And the guns are there, too. No, no question. I mean, I've heard stories oof, that have scared the hell out of me right here in, you know, in, in the middle of New Jersey, which you know, you'd think it would be fairly safe. There's, there are people who are planning a revolution, and there are people who have the guns to try to pull it off. Now, will they be able to do it? I don't know. January 6th was pretty scary. I'm just not quite so, I'm, I'm just not quite so nervous as I was a year ago, even, um, or even six months ago uh, about, about that, those possibilities. However, that doesn't mean that those people can't make American politics extremely ugly um, without necessarily having a fascist coup. Right. And, and, you know, it has gone in a way that, you know, in the old days you did have to have a fascist coup, right? I don't know that you need to, that those politics can be poisonous, nevertheless, and that's what mm-hmm. we've seen over the last, you know, six to eight years. Um, and 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 where that's going to go, I don't know. Um, but no. I'm not. I don't think. I mean, I'm not. They're out there, um, but they have to have some kind of political opening. And I don't. I don't quite see the political opening for them in, in, in the way that. I mean, Trump tried. And it didn't work, and I, 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 I don't, I, I don't see it yet. But it, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant, as I said. Well, Sean Wilentz, I thank you so much for joining us on this New Year's Day. My pleasure. Happy New Year again, and uh, you know, Happy New Year to everybody. <laughs> thank you, and thank you on behalf of everybody else. And I thank again you. have been speaking with Sean Wilentz, who's a George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University, where he's taught for since 1979. His books include *The Rise of American Democracy*, *Jefferson to Lincoln*, *The Age of Reagan: a History* (1974 to 2008), *Bob Dylan in America*, and *The Politicians and the Egalitarians*. And his latest book is *No Property in Man: Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding*. This has been background briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.